0: This is David Tarkington, pastor of First Baptist Church of Orange Park and the First Family Network. you're listening to the teaching ministry of our church, thank you for downloading this sermon. If you have any questions about the church, go to firstfam.org or call us at 904-264-2351. Acts chapter 15. Continuing in our journey with Paul and Barnabas, and I, and I love this story, as Paul and Barnabas have, have uh, finished, is this a little bit loud? Is it a little bit hot? So Ryan, wherever you are, can you just bring it down a little bit? And then I'll be sure to scream a little louder to make up for that, so. (laughs) That messes with the sound, guys. I hate that. Oh, there is Ryan. Are you still running the sound? You're doing good? Okay. So can you hear me? Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Okay. Paul and Barnabas have gone on their first missionary journey. They've made their way back to Antioch where the church that sent them out on the mission and they've given reports of how good God is and what he's done and how he's saved Gentiles and Jews alike and there are some Gentiles that have joined that fellowship in Antioch and lo and behold, Paul and Barnabas discovered there are some, as we know, we call them now the Judaizers who have moved in to that church and have started teaching things that are outside of what the gospel teaches. They've added works to their understanding of faith. They're telling the Gentiles that, oh, it's okay if you can, be a, you can be a member of the church, you can be a Christian. However, you have to be circumcised first, and you have to be a, a Jew first, and then you can become a Christian. And Paul and Barnabas are going, that is not the gospel. Paul and Barnabas then go down to Jerusalem where the elders and the church leaders are and they have a, I guess you could call it a large business meeting of, of those that are the leaders of the church at the time and that is, is what has happened now and they have come, into, come to an agreement. Church leaders and a church gathered have had a business meeting and they have had a unanimous response in the positive. That what Paul and Barnabas have brought before them is wrong, what's happening in Antioch. And they have a declarative statement regarding that. So if you would, look in Acts chapter 15, beginning in verse 22. We're going to read a good section of this chapter as you see as this uh, unfolds. It says, Then it seemed good to the apostles and to the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers they sent them with the following letter, um, and here's what it said, the brothers, both the apostles and the elders to the brothers who are, at, who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ we have therefore sent Judas and Silas who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth for it has been, it has seemed good to the holy spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality if you keep yourselves from these you will do well farewell There is an event that takes place in our household. It takes place six days a week, unless there's a holiday that week. And it's an event that has been scheduled throughout my entire life. And it has become, because I'm a strange individual, it has become a highlight to my day. And I think it is because of of the family that I grew up in, because my parents were in the, my dad was in the military, we moved around quite a bit. And my grandmothers would actually write letters by hand and mail them to my mom and dad on a weekly basis. And so going to the mailbox became a big deal, and I don't know why it's still a big deal. I guess it's, I'm an old soul. I don't know. There's nothing in the box normally other than things that I don't want to see, letters that tell me I need to give money back to some people so or, or pay a bill. But nonetheless, the mail, going to the mail every day, for me as a kid, uh, that letter to my mom, it, it was not to me, it was to her, but there was something special about those letters every week when they came in. They either smelled like cinnamon or they smelled like mint, and that's because my one grandmother started putting one piece, one stick of gum in there, unchewed, by the way, one stick of gum, either double mint or spearmint or big red, And that one piece of gum was in the letter, and it didn't matter if we had gum in the house, it didn't matter if I had candy available, it's amazing how much better that one stick of gum that came from West Tennessee tasted. I longed for that, hoping that another letter would be written every week. What's fun is that one grandmother was doing it, and the other one found out, so I started getting two sticks of gum a week. So it's pretty good, you know, it's kind of like that peer pressure, it's not always bad. So... Uh but, but going to the mailbox and getting the mail uh, is, is, is I don't know it's, it's just some kind of routine we do every day unless like I said and there's a holiday and um, my uh, my granddaughter is uh, she's did I mention I have a granddaughter did I mention that last week I think I did. And so she, uh, when, when I'm at home and, and, uh, and Tracy hasn't already gone out to the mailbox, uh, that, ha- that becomes our, our, our journey of the day. It, it's an incredible journey. It usually happens somewhere between 3 and 4 o'clock, 4 or 5 o'clock, when she's getting ready to be picked up by her parents and she's about done with the grandparents. You know what I mean? You understand what I'm saying? And so it's like, hey, let's go to the mailbox. And so the mailbox journey is a, is a journey. You know, we pick three leaves off the bush on the way there. We walk slowly. We open the box. And she sticks her arm all the way in. I have to check first just to make sure. She loves getting mail. She loves the Mint magazine. She loves tearing it up and throwing all that stuff around. So we have confetti in the yard on the way back. But getting mail, it's kind of a big deal. It's not as big a deal for younger generations, I've discovered. I've talked to some of you. I've said, hey, you know, it's gonna, something's in the mail. Do you check your mail? I said, yeah, we check it like once every month. I'm like, what? It's just a generational thing. I understand. But the mail's a big deal. And in this part of, the, of, of history, there were a lot of letters being written. In fact, the majority of our New Testament is full of letters. But letters weren't written as they are now, where they're written down, put a stamp on it, put it in the mail, put it in the post office, take it to UPS, a package, send it to FedEx or Amazon or whatever, get it shipped. That doesn't work. Back then, when you had a message you had to get from point A to point B, you wrote the letter. And the letter was then not put on the Pony Express or put on a boat or a ship or nonetheless, it was put in the hands of a person. The hands of a trusted friend, the hands of somebody that you could trust with their lives would protect the message because the message was that important. And when these men were meeting in their business meeting there in Jerusalem, they came to an agreement, a unanimous agreement. They were in one accord, as it says, to agree and affirm the teachings of the gospel and that no work should be added to the the gospel of faith and grace. And, uh, and so they give these letters to these two men. And these men are Judas. And, and, and I know every time we talk about Judas, uh, typically, as is the case, Judas Iscariot, the, the betrayer, is the one that comes to mind. But there were a lot of guys named Judas in the New Testament. There were a lot of guys in that day. And this guy's name was Judas. And it says they called him Barsabbas. And let me just say, if you're living in the era where Judas Iscariot's getting popular, yeah, you'd get a nickname too. So he goes by Barsabbas. Judas Barsabbas we don't know much about him in fact all we know about him is his name is Judas and they call him Barsabbas that's it because that's all we have we also have his 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 partner in this journey that's going back with Paul and Barnabas back to Antioch and his name is Silas now Silas is a little more well known in New Testament you will see him referenced in some letters as Silvanus and it's the same man but Silas is also the one that eventually joins with Paul we know Paul and Barnabas had the first trip eventually Paul and Silas are missionary partners. What we do know about Judas Barsabbas and Silas is this. These were godly men, these were men of renown, these were men of faith, these were men of strength, these were men who were trusted. These were men who were selected by the church to be given this very precious, precious cargo, this letter. This letter that would unpack some truths for the church so that the church would have um, the arsenal necessary to to not fall into the traps of the lies of the enemy which was already infecting them. So they didn't have the Bibles that we have where they could just look up a verse and say, well, this is what it said. Um, They were living in the era when this was being written. And so they sent the letter to them, the letter that I just read to you, and they sent it to these men. And and these men men were... um, we're, we're, as I said, godly, godly men selected for this journey. Now, the letter had some information in it, and I think about this a lot. I think about you young men who graduated and those others who graduated this past Friday and, and others who will soon. When you're in the school system, there are some things that, that you're taught, and educators know this, there is there's an accumulation of knowledge that is expected what you start learning in kindergarten is important. In fact, a lot of times in pre-K, you're learning how to learn, and the teachers are trained to help you understand that. And 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 you're always learning, and you're always accumulating knowledge, and you're knowing things this year that you didn't know last year. And and the things you learned this year are hopefully helpful to build what you need to know the next year. And you understand how this works. That the job, uh, once you get to a certain level in in school, you're accumulating credit hours. You're accumulating these items that are going to be required when the day comes. So that that graduation may happen, that you have done everything necessary on your part to gain the knowledge and to prove that you have the knowledge necessary due to the GPA that is assigned to you based on your assignments. So knowledge is something that is good, but knowledge is not a word. I would say this, that sometimes in our world today, people tend to think knowledge and this other word are synonyms and they're not exactly synonyms. They don't mean the same thing. And this other word I'm speaking of is wisdom. Knowledge and wisdom are not necessarily the same thing. Knowledge can be accumulated, knowledge can be searched for, you can google information. You can, you can say, man, I, I just want to know something about that. And you can go to Google and you can look at up. Anybody here uh, ever watch like a TV show or a movie and you see some actor or actress that comes on the screen and immediately you're going, who is that? I have seen them in something else. And you are that individual that really can't enjoy the show because you just are stuck on where have I seen that person before. And uh, thanks be to God, we have IMDb and Google. So that's what I do. I am the irritating person in the home that can't watch a show because I can't figure out who that person is. So I'm over there looking on IMDb or Google, and I'm like, oh, oh, they played like the third red shirt guy that got killed in the fourth episode of Star Trek. That's who that is. Ah. And my wife's like, I don't care. But what I have just done is I've accumulated knowledge. It's useless knowledge. It's not even valuable for Jeopardy, but I have more knowledge. Do you know anybody, have you ever thought of folks that have so much knowledge about stuff but just They don't have any wisdom. We used to call it common sense. It's very uncommon. I know people that are very wise that if you're going to look at their pedigree and that which they have accumulated and have been, the culture says is required to to be something, they don't have a lot of letters after their names or degrees on the wall, but but they're very, very wise. One of the wisest persons I've ever met was my great-grandmother. She didn't have a, a higher education. I don't know that she ever got out of elementary school, but she was a wise woman wise because of who she knew the lord wise and how she filtered the knowledge of the word and lived it out now of course i you got to understand i i had a vision i had a a perspective of her as a young child who spent time with her and just thought man she's the wisest person i ever met and i know what you you think well you're just a kid you think that's just because you love your great-grandmother and that this and the other that's true But as I got older, years after she had died, I began to realize, hearing stories from others who had talked about her, that my perception of her wisdom was not just a childish perspective, but her peers saw that too. Wisdom is a gift from God. Knowledge is an accumulation of information. And knowledge is good, and it can be accumulated, but wisdom is what's needed. Proverbs 1.7 says, "...the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom." and instruction, and no one wants to be a fool. But here's what was happening in Antioch. Antioch is a church of new believers, Gentiles and Jews, and they're figuring out this, all that what it means to live as followers of Jesus Christ. They have given up much to become Christians, much regard to family relationships and businesses and all of that, but there's now these individuals that show up, and they are men of high intelligence, apparently, and they're articulate in what they say. And because they say things clearly and articulately and they are smart, what they say is believed by the majority of the congregation, it must be true. But just because someone is eloquent with words doesn't mean the words are worth hearing, right? And so those men that were in that early church that came in and said, Oh, Gentiles, we are glad to have you in the family of faith, but Oh, it seems like someone has forgotten to tell you something. We talked about it last week, the fine print. The fine print is that not only are you welcome to be a part of the family of faith and to be a part of this church, but they forgot to tell you, gentlemen, that you have to be circumcised first. And every Gentile man went, What? And Paul and Barnabas show up and they go, That's not right. They don't have to become Jews before they can become Christians. The gospel of grace is a redemptive gospel. It is the fullness of that. And even though they had the knowledge of the law, these Judaizers, and the knowledge of the Old Testament, and the knowledge that was intimidating to those that were not as well studied, they were wrong. And so Paul and Barnabas take a little journey, as I said, down to Jerusalem. They go down to Jerusalem and they share this with the elders and leaders of the church and I don't think Paul and Barnabas had any concept that that at any point Paul's Paul's confidence in himself and in the word of God is very clear throughout scripture so I don't think he doubted he was right but I do believe that he was going going to the church in Jerusalem going to meet with the elders and the leaders of the church because this was going to be something that he knew that the church would be battling not just in Antioch but in Galatia and Ephesus and all these other areas where Gentiles are coming to the Lord and if we don't address this as a united front from a biblical perspective with the right answer then we are going to continue to have to fight this and then we might even fight among ourselves and so they go there and amazingly they have this incredible business meeting anybody ever been in a church business meeting anybody ever ever you know, we've had them they're pretty fun around here anybody ever been in a church business meeting that would be categorized as not fun yeah those are the ones that uh you look and you go, I thought we were all going to heaven together. Yeah, but we're going to fight here tonight, right? Here's something that happened in this early church. A divisive issue was brought up. Well, do the Gentiles have to be circumcised? Do we have to go with the Old Testament law so they have to become Jews before they become Christians? It was stated clearly, questions were asked, brothers seeking insight were in the room, prayer was offered, and conversations occurred. And it was almost like once it kind of settled down that you actually had mature adults in the room talking with each other like they loved each other with real mature conversation. And it was amazing. And it was proof that Christians who are maturing in their faith, seeking God's face, walking in faith and obedience, walking in the spirit can actually discern truth from lies. It was proof that knowledge, while important, was not the same as wisdom. And as God poured out his wisdom upon his church, they came to a unanimous answer in their decision. They were in full agreement. I mean, really, apparently from what it says, real full agreement, not one of those where almost everybody agrees, but there's a couple of holdouts and they just go, well, I won't vote because I don't want to be the only guy that doesn't vote against you know for it we've been in those meetings too apparently the brothers were in full agreement and came to an understanding that truth was truth and the gospel was the gospel and you don't add works to to the faith that is required and the grace that is required to become a child of god in this group they found unity let let, let me just see what time it is oh you hate when they say that Don't you hate that? Well, sorry. Unity is needed in the church. There's no debate on that. It is a biblical reality. Christians should be unified. And there are churches that, that have statements that are based on the great commandment, much like ours, that our goal is to love God and to love people, and we should. There's more to it than that, by the way. The gospel is much deeper and goes a little further than just generic love, though love is required. And then there are churches that say we want to love God, love people, and we want to be, have unity. And, and let me just say that's not also a good thing to seek and to, and to, and to desire. But, but let me just, can I, can I just go here and just remind us that unity for the sake of unity is empty and worthless. Unity for the sake of just unity strips away convictions and ultimately and eventually strips away truth. We live in an era now in our nation and in our in the in the culture uh, that it's not just now it's been like uh, 50 60 70 years going where mainline Protestant denominations have split left and right over issues of biblical inerrancy and morality and other issues like that. I mean there's a reason there are two mainline Pro- uh, Presbyterian denominations. There's a reason that that you're seeing things happening. There's a reason in our own county we had Grace Episcopal Church and then eventually New Grace Anglican Church. It was Because the church planting movement happened in the Episcopal uh, denomination. That's not why we have two grace churches. It's a reason that there's a lot of concern about what's going to happen in Nashville this summer over the Southern Baptist Convention. Is it going to split? I don't know. It might. Who knows? I know that I have brothers and sisters on both sides of every argument, and it's Baptist, so if there's 10 Baptists in the room, there are 30 opinions. We know how this works. I pray that we find unity in the gospel. And we get back to what really matters and quit shooting our own injured. But nonetheless, this is what happens. Our own brothers and sisters that are part of the United Methodist Church are at a point of schism even now, if you've been following any of that. The only thing united about United Methodist Church is the trademark and their logo. That's not a shot, that's a reality, and that's a sad reality. That it's about to schism and divide even now. The United Methodist Church came together back in the 60s when the Brethren and the multiple Wesleyan churches united to, get, to gain some momentum and size, but now we're starting to see it trickle off again. And why? Why is it going to split? Why is this going to happen? It's very simple, an LGBTQ plus agenda. That's it. You can make it anything else you want to be, but right now that's it. And that's hitting every church denomination that's out there. So you're going, well, well can't we just all get along? I mean, Rodney King theology sounds good on the surface, but eventually you've got to figure out why or what, get along around what. Yeah, churches are splitting, denominations are dividing. Non-denominational churches are rising up and some say, oh, that's the answer. That's not always the answer. There are some great non-denominational churches out there. And then there are some non-denominational churches that are, are, uh, you know, an inch deep and a mile wide. See, here's the thing about unity, and here's the thing about church doctrine. At some point, we need to understand if we're going to be unified, we got to be unified around something. Not some nebulous, fuzzy, gray area of feel good religiosity, but something of substance. See, if Paul and Barnabas had heard the messages of those legalistic Judaizers that came in and said, you know, we don't want to stir up anything because, you know, they're good guys and they tithe. We ought to at least keep them in the room. They could have had, quote unquote, unity and a dead church. But they looked and they said, you know what? Their doctrine is wrong. It's not because their doctrine doesn't match my doctrine. It's because their doctrine doesn't match Jesus' doctrine. And in those moments when I realize that maybe my doctrine might be wrong, I must change to align with him. Unity around the gospel. That's it. Not around anything else, not around politics, not around agendas, not around any other issue, but around the gospel itself is what will sustain us and move us forward. Otherwise, we're all doomed to eventually fight each other and split now, some are coming in, they've never been here before, they're going, is this church having fights? I don't know, we might now, I didn't, we didn't before. Uh, I don't think so. But sometimes you gotta have a little bit of a preemptive strike to say, let's just clarify what's really true. Standing on the word of God, believing it to be true from beginning to end, believing the truth is Jesus Christ, that he is the only way to heaven, that we can't disavow the virgin birth, that the Trinity is not an optional doctrine to believe, that Christ alone is the answer. And if we don't understand that, and if we won't believe that, and if we can't lock arms around that, then it doesn't matter music style, lighting in the building, or if the air conditioner's on or off because we won't be a church. The gospel matters that much. Paul and Barnabas went down to Jerusalem and it says they sent... Judas, and Barsab- Judas Barsabbas, his nickname, and Silas back with them to, rem- to share the results of the business meeting and to give them this most important letter of encouragement and clarity. Now, who are Barsabbas and Silas? Let me tell you who they're not. They're not some interns that worked at the church unpaid just trying to figure out if they like the ministry concept of working for a living. They were not the men who drew the short straw. They were not men who were barely committed. These were not guys that showed up to church twice a month and half the people didn't know who they were. These were two men embedded within the fellowship of believers that were there all the time as needed were those you could count on. They didn't clock out when their Christianity moved beyond Sunday morning. They were in for the long haul. And they were selected to be the ones to take the message. The letter was to be taken to Antioch. The message was the mission and it had to be taken to those that needed the answer and they're off. They arrive back to Antioch. They go to the church. The questions regarding Jesus plus circumcision by the men is offered there and and they read their letter from the elders and the leaders of the church in Jerusalem and Paul and Barnabas and they read it to the congregation for this is the answer. The letter gives the answer. It isn't Jesus plus, it's just Jesus. Even the illiterate understood, because the church saw to it to make sure that you didn't have to know how to read to hear what was in the letter. That's why they sent Silas and Barsabbas to read it to the congregation. No, you don't have to be circumcised to be a Christian. No, you don't have to have any man-made thing done to you, or you don't have to do anything in addition to Christ alone. Let me just say that, that this isn't the only place this happened. Antioch's not the only place that took place. I was reading in Galatians this morning. I don't have this on the screen, but I was reading through Galatians. And Paul is, uh, you know, Paul is this godly apostle, this, this man of God, Holy Spirit infused. He, everything, he's writing these letters by God's hand. He's doing this. But Paul is still human, right? And sometimes Paul, in and, and his writings, you get a little bit of Paul's personality, right? in the midst of this because you know that here's what's happening every time paul goes to a city and preaches the gospel as soon as he leaves some jokers are following him and they're trying to confuse everybody saying oh paul didn't get it right there's this too And then, so Paul then finds out, are you kidding me? So he's writing these letters back to these churches saying, I just told you the truth. And then you let these guys get in the, get in the church, stand on the podium. And they told you all these things that are opposite of what I've said. So you've got a false gospel that's infecting your church like a cancer. So that's why he's writing these letters back. And in Galatians 15, let me see what verse it was. I just wrote, or or, not Galatians 15, Galatians 5, Galatians 5. Let me find this here. I was reading that this morning and I thought, oh, here's Paul's personality in full technicolor right here in galatians 5 12 talking about the same kind of people he said this i wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves i have yet to see that verse on a t-shirt i haven't and there is no statue at lifeway that depicts that jesus junk at hobby lobby let's see that one show up on the that ain't happening but Paul says, I am, I'm so sick and tired of what they're doing. I wish they would just, uh oh. mm. Sometimes you gotta, you gotta get a little serious about what's going on here and say, hey, if the gospel matters, the gospel matters. I, I was reading this too, guys, and, and this is not just for the graduates, this is for all of us. Look here, in the same passage, yeah, I shouldn't have shut the page here, Galatians 5, I continued on, and, and I thought, wow, all right. So, so, so sometimes sometimes commencement speeches and I get it, you know, because they, they, they got to say something. Graduation, say things like, you know, stuff like, follow your heart. You know, that's ridiculous. That's a terrible uh, thing. Don't ever follow your heart. Your heart's evil. Don't do that. Um, you know, you can be anything you want to be. You can't. I mean, you, you, you think you can. I want to be a can of dog food. You can't. You don't want to be that. Why would you? That's ridiculous. So there's all these kitschy kind of feel good, tweetable junk that's offered. Let me, let me tell you what the scripture says. Says you get to walk one of two ways. Not just the graduates, but all of us. We get to walk one of two ways. And this is, this is relevant to what Paul was writing to these guys, or what, what was written in the book of Acts in this letter. In Acts chapter 5, it says this, verse 16. I mean, I, I mean Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Well, that sounds like something every Christian should desire. I mean, no, no, who, what Christian wants to just be fleshly desire the desires of their flesh? Uh, well, hopefully we're not. Verse 17, the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. So I don't know if you caught this, but you can't walk in the flesh and walk in the Spirit at the same time. You can't, you can't toe that line. It's one or the other. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. The real things that the good Christian should want to do. In verse 18 it says, But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Which, see, that, rev- that exactly goes to what those guys were saying in Acts. But what are the works of the flesh? Just in case you need a list, Paul gives you one. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality. Don't know if you noticed that, but it's kind of rampant today. Impurity in the church and out, but it's real. Sensuality. So, everybody that thinks I'm okay but looks online at things they shouldn't, there you are. Idolatry. That's not just little statues you're offering sacrifices to, it's anything you put over God your job, your career, your 401k, your bank account, your house, your kids, your grandkids. I don't know if you knew this, but you can celebrate your kid's graduation as long as you don't worship them as your God. See, it's easy in our culture to do this. Idolatry is of the flesh, sorcery is of the flesh, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger. Anybody you know Anybody know anyone that just has an, has, they have an anger problem? They have, a, they have a bad temper. You realize that a person with a bad temper is just revealing that they don't walk in the spirit of God? Even if they just say, I just have a bad temper. My dad had a bad temper. My mama had a bad temper. I can't help it. Right. But if you walk in the spirit, you have self-control. See how that works? Fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies. And that's a long list Paul gives, but he knows how human beings are, and we know how we are, right? We'll look at that and go, okay, the thing I do isn't on that list. So Paul said, and the things like these, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. He says, I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But I love this. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who have belonged to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. It doesn't say you don't sometimes fall into walking in the flesh, but there is a, a real good time to look in the mirror right now and say, where am I most all the time? Do I justify the fact that I'm just jealous of other people? Do I justify the fact that I have fits of anger and I say things I shouldn't and I have to apologize all the time? Do I just justify the fact that, that I have my own personal needs and sexual needs and all these things that I've de- declared to be needs and so I kind of go there because I, you know, it's what I, I feel like I, I deserve that? And you're either walking in the flesh or you're walking in the spirit. This is for Christians. You're either walking in the flesh or you're walking in the spirit. See, heart transformation leads to lifestyle change. But we often live like it's or believe like it's the other way around. You ever heard this phrase, we like our fish clean before we catch them? That's how a lot of Christians live. Oh, like, if this old boy would get his act together, if he'd start treating his family better, if he'd quit drinking, quit doing drugs, quit doing this, quit doing that, quit looking at that, quit living with that, you know, all of these. if you'll just do all these things first, then I'll come on to church and you'll, you'll, you'll find Jesus. It's, it's really the back, it's like putting the caboose in front of the train. It's backwards. Behavior modification and life change never or life change or changing your lifestyle does not lead to heart transformation. Heart transformation through Christ, through the gospel, through surrender, through Christ alone infects you in a good way and leads to all the others. See, so in that letter that was written to the guys in Acts, they said, hey, we're not gonna ask you Gentiles to do anything more than we're asking the Jews to do. Don't eat meat, sacrifice to idols. You're gonna make a a weaker brother. You know, you're gonna make him fall. Don't fall into sexual immorality. Just live a holy Christian life, you know, fruit of the Spirit. It's the same message for us. It's the same message for us. As I look at this, I think of a challenge today for all of us but if I'm if you want to make it for the graduates you guys can use this too here's my challenge seek wisdom not just knowledge seek wisdom and that's gifted from God be found worthy of the mission we live in a day and age where we we pick our careers we pick our college we pick our degrees we pick our lifestyle and then we ask God to bless it after we've decided everything we're going to do I'm going to ask you to seek God's face as you move forward and live in his will and be found worthy of the mission and have a life that matches the message. You know what was really good about Barsabbas and Silas delivering the letter that represented the holy right thing to do? Is that Barsabbas and Silas, though imperfect as human beings, were redeemed by the grace of God and they were living the message, they were walking the walk. Their letter matched their lifestyle. Perhaps, you know, some churches would say, hey, we need some more Barsabbases in here. Maybe there's a Silas in here. Let me just go ahead and say that no. There's not a Silas in the room. There's not a Barsabbas in the room. There's no more Davids in the room. You can learn from all of those. And I loved how those blessings were because they referenced that. But here's the good news. I believe there's a you in the room you, that God is calling out for a mission that only you can do, that only you can fulfill. And that's even more exciting, that you would be called by God to live lives worthy of the grace-filled calling that he has given you, to be a living message of the gospel of grace to those who need to hear it and see it to be the voice speaking clearly and lovingly to those who do not see a way out of their messed up, confusing, overwhelmed, busy lives. They need to hear your your voice speaking the truth of God for you to be the clarity in a confusing world. When everybody else is looking for someone they can go to, they can call, they can text, they can ask, how do you do it? I seem to be falling apart. They need to see you. Not perfect, but steady. Walking in the spirit, trusting God in the midst of your own overwhelming lifestyle. They need to see you and me as the all-in maturing disciples of Jesus Christ, bringing the message of hope to a lost and dying world. You're going, well, you're asking me to be Jesus. No, I'm not. But I am asking you to be like him. That's what he asked. My disciples will do even more than I did. That's you and me. To bring the message of the gospel of grace to those who most desperately need it. You say, well, does God God need me? God doesn't need you. That's another great blessing. He doesn't need you. The work that God's going to do, God's going to do. But here's what's really exciting. God wants you. He's invited you into it. How incredible is that? Did they need Barnabas and Silas to take the letter? Nah, they'd have got it there some other way. But how, important, how, how, how incredible was it that, I mean, that Barnabas and Silas were able to do, so, to do that just because they were available? You know, we ask you to think about your one, that one person in your life that you know as best you can tell is not going to go to heaven, doesn't know Jesus, has never said yes to him. And I know many of you have been praying about that individual every week for the last year. And some of you have had the boldness to even have those conversations that have been so hard up until now. But I'm gonna ask you, if you're walking in the Spirit and you're trusting Him, and if you haven't had that conversation with your one, why not this week? Why not this week? Oh, they might reject me. Isn't it worth the risk? It is life and death. Eternity does hang in the balance and God's just saying why don't you get in on this and he's given you and me the privilege of speaking that truth you may you may be thinking I don't know who that one is I can't think of anybody but you know what there's probably somebody in the room that is somebody else's one not everybody here's a Christian I know not everybody in the room's a Christian not everybody in your Sunday school class is a Christian folks not everybody in your care group is a Christian likely so there are some still struggling with this reality of christ and the truth my question to you today knowing that you're somebody's one i'm asking you would you surrender your life to jesus christ today the bible says that no one is worthy all have sinned and fall short of god's glory And Jesus died on a cross and shed his blood to pay the penalty for sin of all sins past, present, and future. Every sin of every human being that had ever lived. And he paid the penalty that you and I owe so we don't have to die. The wages of sin is death. And it always has been. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is not a request for you to repeat a prayer after me. This is not a request for you to make another commitment. But it is that offer To say, do you have this eternal life secure in you? Do you know heaven is your home? Have you surrendered and given up, declared Christ to be the Lord, and confessed your sin? If you want a prayer, there's your prayer. Dear God, I've sinned. I'm so sorry. Please forgive me of my sin. I believe Jesus is your son. I believe he died on the cross. I believe he rose again on the third day, and because he rose again, he defeated death, and I want to defeat death. So, Lord, would you come into my life? and change me from the inside out. That's a prayer. You could pray something like that. But it's got to be yours. Would you do that today? I'm praying for you. We're going to close. We're going to have one one moment of uh, some music playing, and then I'm going to be down front. And at the end of this service, if you need to see me or one of our pastors about that decision to say yes to Jesus, I'd love to talk to you about that. Father, I thank you for who you are, and I thank you for Jesus Christ. I thank you, Lord, for when a, for the, the reality that when a, when a message needed to be sent to the world, you sent Jesus as that great letter, that great word, the word of truth, who is the way, the truth, and the life. And I thank you that online and in the room there are lost people watching that do not know you. I thank you for them. I thank you, Lord, that they've stayed with it, and they've listened, and they've heard, and whether they're frustrated or confused or questioning Lord I'm good with that and you are too so thank you that you're causing that stirring of emotions even in their mind right now but I pray Father that whether they turn off the computer or they walk out the door that they do not do that before they have settled eternity with you this is what it's really all about Lord we would love to see some people today graduate from being a creation of God to being a child of God. That would be a celebration to have. May that happen now. And for those of us in the room who are believers, who struggle even with our own daily walk and all that we have in our lives, Lord, I pray the fruit of the Spirit is more than a poster or a phrase on a t-shirt or a coffee mug, but it can be a declaration of how we are walking, not in our own power, but in the power of the Spirit with the love, the joy, the peace, the patience, the goodness, the self-control, the faithfulness, and all that it entails, so that you are honored in our life and glorified. Bless First Baptist Church of Orange Park and all of our friends and family members today. In Jesus' name I ask this.